Welcome to Gaming Going Deeper, a podcast series by the Gaming's Brotherhood, where we talk about personal development, mental health, and sexuality. We are your hosts. Michael Diorio is a life and wellness coach specializing in sexuality, relationships, and self-confidence. Reno Johnson is a spiritual life, love, and business coach. And I'm Matt Lancedal, a counselor and facilitator specializing in healing and empowerment. So we each have our own private practice, and in this podcast, we're sharing all of our best stuff. Today, we're talking about addiction and recovery. This is a two-part series. So this week, we're going to be talking about addiction, and next week, we're going to be talking about recovery. So come and join us uh, for, for that one next week. Um, and we're going to be exploring questions like, how has addiction shown up in your life? How do you see addiction showing up in the gay community? And then next week, we're going to be exploring what have you done to recover from your own addiction or addictive tendencies? Um, and how or what can you share with the audience about living sober and enjoying life's pleasures responsibly? So the three of us have a lot of wisdom to share in this area, and uh, it's going to be good. So and um, for those of you that want to join us and continue the discussion on the last Thursday of every month in the Gimmins Brotherhood, we have our Zoom hangouts where you'll have a chance to share your own experiences. So come and join us. And this podcast and YouTube channel are listener and viewer supported. So if you enjoy what you're what we're creating, what you're hearing, you can support us by making a donation to the show by using the link in the show notes. You can also subscribe to early access on Apple podcast and listen ad free and gain early access to episodes. All of your support helps us continuing making content for you and supporting our community. And we do thank you in advance. If you're looking to accelerate your personal development journey, check out our coaching collection. So learn how to heal and empower yourself at your own pace by getting instant access to 45 plus premium personal development coaching videos created by us, as well as our healing your shame and building better relationships courses. So you can head over to Gay Men Going Deeper for more info on that. All right. Well, happy new year. It is 2024 and it's a fresh start. So we are talking about uh, making change. Obviously, when we're talking about addiction and recovery, we're talking about how we're how we're showing up in the world. Um, you know, are we showing up in our in our fullest, or are we numbing out our experience to get through? And um, and the changes that we want to make if we want to start living more fully and not being um, in these more numbed out or escapist states. Um, so the theme of the month is addiction and recovery. So we're going to be, we have two episodes coming out on this topic and then um, uh, a few other really great uh, episodes that are going to be coming out. Michael and I are, will have our uh, our solo episodes coming out. Um, so I wanted to say off the top, um, just my experience in this area. So talking about addiction and recovery. So uh, this was actually what I studied for my undergrad. I studied addiction counseling uh, in university for four years. I have a lot of wisdom in this space. I worked in the field for 10 years doing mental health and addiction counseling. Um, I haven't worked in this space for probably, well, almost 10 years now, actually. I took a hiatus from that. And then I got back into counseling and coaching and doing a lot of work with shame and trauma. But Really, when you're working with addiction, you're working with the roots of the addiction, which is shame and trauma and grief and these sorts of things. So it is very similar, but there's some really fine nuances that I wanted to share with you guys today around addiction and what um, what addiction is. So I grabbed just like a basic, you know, um, uh, definition off of Wikipedia just to kind of start off. So addiction is a neuropsychological disorder, and I would even say neuropsychological slash spiritual disorder. I'll share a bit more about that later. Um, 
characterized by a persistent and intense urge to use a drug or engage in a behavior that produces natural reward despite substantial harm and other negative consequences. Okay. So every addiction is going to have two things that are going to be present in it. So obsession and compulsion. So obsession is the cravings. It's the thoughts about using or engaging in the behavior, like using the substance or engaging in the behavior. Compulsion is the actual act on the craving. So it's the behavior. So you have to have these two things present in order um, for the addiction to be present. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to understanding or treating addiction, I, I, I look at it through the lens of what they call the biopsychosocial spiritual model. Okay. So it's more of like the holistic, more up-to-date model when it comes to understanding and treating addiction. So the biological is that people can have a biological predisposition to addiction. So if we, when you were in vitro, if you, your mother was using substances that can pr biologically predispose you, your brain chemistry to becoming addicted to substances if you use them. Okay. So there's a very much a, um, you know, you look at nature versus nurture. This is very much the nature side of things. Like it, it's, it's tied, it can be tied into the genetics of, of us, uh, when it comes to that. And then, uh, the psycho, the psychology of it is that we can um, experience things in our lives that that you know create suffering and pain in our in our psychology and and in our relationship to ourself that can lead us to want to escape and and use drugs and alcohol for that reason. Um, the uh, the social is more the environment. So how our environment plays a role in using. So this could be again, it could be the you know seeing drugs and alcohol and behaviors being used in our household growing up. It can be our peers um, encouraging us to use peer pressure. These sorts of things. Um, and then the spiritual, from my perspective, is it's very much about um, disconnection. When we're disconnected from uh, ourselves, our connection to spirit, from other people, I think this is a really big thing. So if we lack meaning and purpose in our lives and we lack a spiritual connection, it's a, I think it's a big precursor to people um, developing addiction. So this is both understanding and treating addiction. When you're looking at somebody who has an addiction, you want to look at all of those areas and see which ones are the most prevalent for that person. Um, and then some of the most, the more outdated models, in, in my opinion, are like the moral and disease model. Um, I don't support these. I think they're extremely ineffective and they're shaming to a certain degree and they're very limiting. Um, so the moral model is more um, that, you know, looking at it like this person should have the willpower to get out of their addiction. Like, why are people doing this? You know what I mean? It's it's often that apathetic point of view that you see when, you know, people taking when they see people on the street that are using, it's like, why don't they just go get a job and, you know, get up off their ass. And, and it's really, really taking out the mental health aspect of addiction. And it's just erasing that. So don't support that, that side of things. It's a very shaming model. Um, and then the disease model, it's quite controversial in the sense that it looks at it like it's irreversible um, and there is no cure to addiction. Um, so again, if we're talking within the biological perspective and somebody's biologically predisposed to addiction, sure, there could be a disease model applied to that. But in a lot of other cases, I don't support that because it's saying once you have an addiction, you are always a slave to that addiction. Um which is one of the reasons why I'm not a huge supporter of certain aspects of AA model, because it's, you're, you know, you're getting up in front of people 30 years after you're stopped using and saying, I, you know, I'm mad, I'm an addict. You know, I'm a firm believer that you can liberate yourself from addiction. You don't have to be constantly identifying with that label. Um, but I, I will say that I do support AA and these models because they provide a sense of belonging 
community, like-mindedness. There's a lot of beautiful things about the, about these models as well. So I just want to highlight that I'm not, I'm not shitting on the model. I'm, I'm just saying it's, you know, there's certain aspects that are pros and certain aspects that are cons according to me. Um, okay. And then looking at how to assess addiction. Um, I think this is important because, you know, if you're listening, it's important to be able to look at like yourself, honestly, right? Because we can, you know, yes, we can go and get a clinical diagnosis for having an addiction, but we can also look at these criteria that I'm going to give you. And you can say, like, is this showing up in my life? Or, you know, do I have some of these characteristics that are going to entail whether or not I have an addiction? So the first thing I want to say is that, you know, there's a continuum of use, they call it which is, you know, the start out would be no use, right? So somebody who's not engaging in any sort of addictive behavior or substances, and then it moves into use. So probably people who are more responsible social users, um, and then misuse can develop, which is like you start to see impacts in your major life areas, like, you know, maybe you're missing work, or you're having hangovers or whatever that might be being promiscuous while you're using and then you start to get into abuse, which is going to be escalating in the, the consequences that you're seeing within your life. And then addiction, which is full-blown. So you're going to see a huge impact on your major life areas. So work, finances, um, your, your, your mental health, your physical health, these things really start to deteriorate when you move along this continuum, okay? Um, and then throughout the course of my career, I kind of developed like a little bit of like my own personal model that I use to help myself understand um, without having to use some sort of like prescriptive um, like testing for people. Um, and it's duration, intensity, frequency, and intention. Those are like kind of the, the, the categories that I use to, to define it. And in order to say that somebody has an addiction or a significant compulsion, you'd be looking at having a, like a lot of these, like pretty much all four of them. Okay. So the duration is how long you look at how long has somebody been using um, over the course of time, right? That's one of the things. So that in isolation could not, would not define an addiction because somebody could be using once a week for 10 years and the, and the, the intensity is low. They're not using a lot, right? So maybe they have a couple alcoholic drinks and they've been doing that for 10 years. That's not an addiction. Okay. Um, but then you add in intensity and this is how much. Okay, so how much have they been using for how long have they been using that amount, right? And that's kind of going to be give you that indicator. Um, and then frequency is how often. So again, like how long, mix that with how often if they if they're using daily, and they've been doing that for 10 years, you'd start to kind of be like, okay, maybe this person has an addiction. So those three factors, and then you add in intention. Okay, why is this person using what's going on in their life? Are, are they trying to escape something? Um, are they using to um, deal with, you know, like self-medicating, dealing with some sort of mental health issue? There's, you know, so these four factors really, really help, um, can help you understand whether or not you're engaging. And you can apply this to anything. You can apply this to, to things that are more chemical. But when you start to move into process addiction, it can get challenging because things like sex, food, work, working out, these things that we can become addicted to, you know, the duration, intensity, and frequency, we have to eat every day, right? We have to, you know, eat a certain amount of food every day. So all of these things kind of become moot. But in those process addictions, you really, really want to hone in on intention. 
okay, why are they engaging in this? You know, when they're eating, what is their pattern of eating? Are they eating and then binging? Um, are, you know, are they having a ton of promiscuous sex? And then there's, there's some sort of consequences coming from that, right? Um, so intention becomes really, really important when you're talking about process addiction. And then lastly, what I wanted to say here is, you know, what is a process addiction? So you look at like things like shopping, sex, food, gambling, gaming, social media, um, work, these sorts of things that we can engage in that are behavior. So processed addictions are behavioral addictions. And then substance addictions are things obviously like street drugs, pharmaceuticals, alcohol, and steroids, actually, a lot of people don't really believe that steroids can become addictive because they're not actually addictive in the sense of um, biologically, but they can be psychologically addictive in the sense of the result that it's giving you can become addictive. Um, so and this is actually I've added this one because it's quite prevalent in our community. A lot of people don't know this, but there's a lot of steroid use amongst gay men. And it's, uh, um, yeah, it can become very problematic because we have a lot of body image issues um, in our community. So we do see a lot of steroid use. Um, so yeah, that's my, my little spiel. Hopefully that stimulated some things for you guys to be able to share when you're talking about your own, uh, your own things. Um, so let's start with Michael. Um, how has addiction shown up in your life? Oh, first of all, that was really, really great, Matt. I think that yeah, was super you. helpful for me and I love the way you, I love the way you organized it so concisely, so cleanly. So mm. thank you. Yeah. Really good. You're welcome. And one thing I want to say before you answer for both of you, because you might not even resonate with the term addiction and some people mm -hmm. listening might not either. So you could re even replace the word addiction with compulsion because compulsion is like, you know, just doing a behavior over and over and over again. It doesn't have to necessarily be an addiction. So you could say like, how has compulsion or addiction shown up in your life? Yeah. Very good point. I think that will help a lot of the listeners, viewers as well, who may not identify with that word addiction. But yeah. I think we can all identify with some compulsive behaviors, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> how has it showed up in my life? So for me, the compulsive behaviors, because I, I wouldn't have called, called them addictions now that you've said that, I wouldn't have called them addictions at the time, but my compulsive behavior has shown up in the darkest times of my life. Mm. Um, and that's where it feels like it has gotten out of control for me. Right. So what I mean by that is I, I have in those moments, I didn't want to face the truth of my experience, the truth of my life, the truth of my thoughts, the truth of my feelings, especially the emotions mm. for me personally, looking at it, it was loneliness and shame mm. at the core. Yeah. Of course, there was the other ones that came around it, inadequacy, disappointment, sadness, all these other things. But for me, it was it was loneliness for sure. And then at, at the core shame of that. So in those dark periods, of course, it's going to be easier for me in my life to turn to these external pleasures instead mm -hmm. of facing that internal pain. So, you know, where I live in, in a very gay urban area, downtown Toronto, there's lots of external pleasures. There's no shortage of ways to find pleasure here, right? Mm -hmm. Be it substances or sex or what have you. So why why would I turn inwards and face the thing that I was not wanting to face, that loneliness, when I had all these other options here? So it made sense to me at the time. And of course, this was not happening. I wasn't like logically thinking, oh, I'm feeling pain and I don't want to feel it. This all happened. The awareness came later, mm -hmm. right? So for me, my personal favorite pleasures were sex, casual sex and hookups. Mm -hmm. and drinking and partying and that that life so at the time this was in my 20s i filled up my calendar and i made sure my calendar was filled with 
either hookup or hookups <laughs> each day, um, parties or just things to do where that was kind of the vibe. Um, you might want to call it a scene queen kind of thing, but there was always something going on. I always had a hookup plan, a date going on or whatever. And this was all to avoid being alone with myself. Yeah. God forbid I was alone for a little while because then I would be forced to face my own thoughts. I would be forced to face those feelings. They would just be there because they were always there. But what I was doing was just trying to distract myself or numb. That's the word we like to use, right? Yeah. And what compounded this, and, and thank you for mentioning that social aspect, Matt, what compounded this was again, where I live. Um, there was no shortage of, of men and I, I was on apps like Grindr and Scruff and all these things. So, I mean, literally I could just pop up with my phone and boom, there was somebody right there. So it was very readily available for me, including the substances at gay bars, right? And drinking. So it was men, sex, party, substances, repeat over and yeah. over and over. Not once did I, or, or only when I was by myself, did I have that pain of being alone or feeling lonely. And I, yeah. And it was an emotional issue for me. So yeah, at the time that was my only outlet to connect with others was going to these spaces, doing this thing. So I didn't, I didn't realize there were alternatives and that's why I love this podcast and I love what we've built with the gay men's brotherhood and whatnot, because hopefully we're telling people, Hey, yeah, you can enjoy that. But also we're having these conversations over here and there are alternatives. Yeah. So because I didn't face the actual core loneliness of my pain, I continued that cycle, just numbing, 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 numbing over and over and over. And I thought, oh, I'm lonely. If I'm lonely, then I need to go be with people. <laughs> but the way I was being with people was in a physical sense. And what I was really craving was an emotional connection, not necessarily just a physical one. And I got those confused at the time. And we've talked about that here as well, right? Because yeah. uh, the core issue Same. for me wasn't, wasn't, a, wasn't a physical loneliness issue. It was a emotional loneliness. So yeah. that's how it's shown up for me in, in the darkest periods of my life. I will say that. Mm. Mm. And I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to the next episode where we can talk about how we got through this. Yeah. Yeah, me too. But I'll I'll save that for later. Okay. Reno, what about yeah. you? So um first of all, yeah, thank you, Matt, for the like thorough and <laughs> in-depth <laughs> exploration um and, and articulation of, of addiction. It is it is deep, it is nuanced, it is um complex it is prevalent and um i'm i'm excited and also you know slightly kind of i don't know if anxious is the word but there's like an uneasiness that comes up around this conversation because it is mm -hmm. a really really vulnerable conversation yeah um so mm -hmm. one of the things i want to start with is um i guess the the lens through which I view and experience addiction. So I heard this beautiful definition of addiction and I thought I really connect to this and I think it kind of levels the playing field and creates a universality around addiction. So it's addiction is any behavior you continue despite it bringing a negative consequence into your life. Yeah. And I love the simplicity of that and the relatability of that, because I think most, if not all people in existence can relate to that in some capacity. Um, for me, addiction, I think it became most noticeable when... Um, probably after I started drinking. So I started drinking at the age of 13. Um, 
and this is sort of in in my own life and in my own experience right because um I'll say more to when addiction when I first recognized addiction which was much earlier um but I would say it started really becoming visible I started becoming conscious of it in my own life um around age 13 I was in high school I had my first drink and um it was part of the social culture where I grew up. I lived in a small town and extracurriculars uh, of of the, at least of the people I spent time with. And I would say it was part of the dominant culture there um, included, you know, drinking, um, snowmobiling, ice fishing and, and more drinking, you know? And so I just kind of slipped right in and that's, that's where, that's where my relationship to alcohol started. And I didn't know that it was an addiction at the time. You know, as I just defined it, it becomes more clear now because when you're drinking to the point where you're, let's say, you know, doing ridiculous things or um, throwing up or feeling sick the next day. Um, well, that may be something that may be something to look at, you know, and to and to and to reflect on. Um, it showed up much earlier for me, though, in the sense that uh, there's a family history of addiction. You know, there are people in my family that navigated addiction. And um, and so I was kind of born into it, essentially. And it was what I saw you know, like almost from the very beginning and then continued to see throughout my life. So I'm no stranger to seeing it in other people. And as was stated earlier, this kind of like tees up the ball, you know, for me to become um, uh, addicted as well you know the 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 stage was set the circumstances were as such right um and i also within the community that i resided in saw a lot of alcoholism and drug addiction etc you know I, I and i'm not going to say that these things are um reserved for you know, communities where there are like, you know, there is low income housing or what have you, but, um, but there certainly can be a connection made between um, a lack of resources, a lack of access, um, marginalization and, and addiction, you know, and we'll probably talk about that more later because if you're and and oppression is is the other thing too um and we'll probably talk more about that later because if you're a gay man well gosh you know <laughs> so um it started with with uh with alcohol or so i thought but there was also food there was also food um food was used as a substitute for connection so when my mom was not available, well, you know, food and entertainment, just plop us in front of the TV, you know, give us, give us, you know, some food, um, you turn on the television and there you go. Right. And um, I don't have a judgment about that. Like I've, 
I've reconciled with that because what I understand is, you know, we're all just doing what makes sense to us at the time. And, and so, you know, there's forgiveness there. And also um, what I see in, in looking back is that that was, that was the beginnings of an addiction to food and entertainment and distraction, you know, or a way of coping with the lack of connection. Hmm. And then, um, you know, there was a period where I started to explore and experiment with drugs. Um, and of course, technology as well. You know, I loved video games. I wouldn't say I was addicted to them. But gosh, when um, they invented this pretty little thing called the, you know, the 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 cell phone. Oof. <laughs> and I got to carry it around with me. It was like trouble, distraction in the palm of my hand, in my pocket, and I could carry it around and everyone else was doing it. So why not? You know? Um, and, and there was, yeah, there was a bit of, there was a bit of, um, you know, exploration and experimentation with drugs. And I saw very quickly that that was going to be a very slippery and unfortunate slope. And so I, I watched, other people get sick i watched other people go to rehab i watched other people die and i just you know i just very quickly i was like I, that's not the direction i'm going in and i just pivoted you know that was enough that was enough for me when it came to um those particular substances but alcohol drinking continued um, for quite some time. And what I'll share here today is that uh, I have been alcohol free now for almost six months. It'll be six months on the 28th. Um, I don't really, you know, I, I wouldn't say I do drugs. I've um, dabbled with psilocybin mushrooms. I don't like cannabis. And the thing with mus mushrooms for me is um, I look at them as a medicine. And so that's that's how I use them when I use them, which is very rare. And it's a very intentional space that I create when I use them. Mm -hmm. um, but but even that isn't often. And I'm just really looking currently at ways to um, increase the degree to which I'm able to show up fully and be fully present within my life, you know, um, and, and I'm really starting to pay attention to some of the addictive patterns and tendencies that I have um, that are, you know, that are preventing that from being possible. And the last thing I want to say is this. Um, there's there's a list of addictions, you know, like, it, so we have drugs, we have alcohol, we have food, we have sex, we have money, you know, we have technology. Um, and then there's something I discovered called the four aggravations, which includes self-doubt, negative thinking, resentment, and procrastination. Hmm. And so again, like in the name of sort of leveling the playing field, it feels it feels um uh important to maybe acknowledge some of those things that kind of like fly under the radar, but continue to create a negative experience in our lives, you know? Um so I, I think I think that's it for now. Um yeah. And last thing, tech, obviously, I mentioned that earlier. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm currently working on like having a different relationship with my phone and with social media. So yeah, yeah.
That's me. Mm -hmm. What about you, yeah. Matt? Well, I just want to say congratulations. That's yeah. a pretty big uh, deal. So on the 28th of January, it's six months? No, of December, actually. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So And cool. it's it's been a year of firsts, too. It's really fascinating. Like, my first birthday since I was 13, sober from alcohol, you know, that, like, uh, first Christmas, you know, alcohol-free. Like, it's, yeah, it's there There have been a lot of firsts, and it's... You know, my I, I tip my hat to anyone who who's on that journey as well. Yeah. 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 I look forward to hearing more about that in the next episode when we talk about recovery and how oh, your yeah. journey to sobriety has been for you. There's it's a it's a very spiritual journey. I've been on it many, many times in many years. So yeah, cool. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Um, yeah, what came what came up before I go into my story is I just want to want to share what came up, like this this whole notion of um living in a capitalistic society and how everything is encouraged around consumption, right? So you have these forces that be that are kind of marketing to us and then we're the consumers. And when you think about consumption, it's like, what are we putting into our minds? What are we putting into our bodies? And, and we really are the guinea pigs of society when we are consuming and like, for example, smoking cigarettes, there's been so much billions of dollars put into marketing uh, when you were able to market, right? And then those people, that generation were, they sold it to the generations below them, right? Through Hollywood, through these different things. And it's just, it's just so fucked up, right? And I'm in this place in my life now where, well, and have been for a long time around, I have an anger towards that aspect of capitalism. I think capitalism is beautiful in its own way, but it's, you know, that aspect of capitalism where it's like they use psychology to, to, to market to us. And, and if you're, if we're not um, educated, we just consume without even thinking about it. So I'm come from the mentality of question everything. Like don't just consume something because everyone else is consuming it, question it. Right. So I just wanted to put that out there. And I know addiction is beyond that. It's beyond being able to just question. It's like, there's something going on in our brain chemistry that we can't escape that. Right. So there's, there's something more than that. But um, when you do get out of that, that, that really cyclical ritual aspect of an habitual aspect of addiction, you can start to question, what do I want to put in my body? Do I want to continue to use pharmaceuticals the way I have been or these sorts of things? There's lots of things or sugar, um, you know, a lot of these things that people are consuming without even thinking about it. So, um, all right. So my, my journey with substances. So it's, it's very extensive. My resume is very long <laughs> when it comes to using substances. So I think I started, uh, the very first thing I used was nicotine. So I started I when I was 10 years old with my friends, my three buddies, we, he had an older brother who would get cigarettes for us. And then we would smoke in that back alley. And um, that was my very first experience. And then by 11, I was drinking alcohol and smoking pot. And um, I actually got like busted by my mom. And I got really sick at a sleepover with a friend and we, 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 we got, ended up getting a boot at the store. That's what we used to call it. And someone bought us alcohol. Like, could you imagine buying alcohol for an 11 year old boy? Like, that's crazy that people would do that for us. And then I ended up passing out and was puking and stuff in this field. And they called my mom. My mom had to come get me. And it was like this big ordeal. So, um, so that was, and then I, I, I got into junior high school and I started, this was around 13 I started using mushrooms and ecstasy and I was smoking pot daily. I was smoking pot in school. Like I would be in the alley in the morning blazing and then I would go into class. And that was how I got <laughs> literally all through junior high school. I was smoking pot. And um, 
And then by the age of 16, I was introduced to cocaine and I started doing that recreationally on the weekends. And then by the age of 17, that had developed into pretty significant addiction of cocaine. And then around halfway through the my 17th year, right as, as uh, graduating from high school, I, I got into crack. So from the age of 17 to 24, I was addicted to crack. And uh that was that's a whole other ball game that that drug it's uh it will ruin your life very very quickly and uh i stole a bunch of money from my father um stole money from different family members pawned off a bunch of stuff sold a car like all just really dark dark time in my life um and believe it or not i actually i can't remember if i shared on this on this podcast but while i was going through my schooling i was using crack like i would go on a binge like once every couple months and i would just spend like a grand and just like annihilate myself and right and again similar to what you were sharing michael is it was a lot of loneliness um i was afraid of having sex with men because i what that meant for me i didn't want to have sex with women and i think for me that that feeling of being like so horny and wanting to have sex with guys, but not being able to, it was really fueling my addiction. So I was like, well, if I'm not getting my, those needs met for dating and love and relationships and sex, which is very, very much important part of our brain developing um, and our emotions, I was using drugs like cocaine and crack and these sort and ecstasy. And these things were really helping me get through um, that. I wasn't getting this need met for love and sex and intimacy with men. And, uh, and then by the age of, and actually, so I, I actually never had, um, I never had sex sober until I was 25 I think so every sexual encounter that I had uh, between the I guess the age of 16 is when I first had sex and then with with women and then 18 men and then up until 25 so that basically that seven-year period I um I was always drunk or high and I didn't know how to have sex sober like it was so foreign for me and I didn't know how to bring emotions and sex together it felt so repulsive for me like I was in a relationship with with a guy for eight years and the first few years of us dating I always would be drunk and we would only have sex on the weekends when we would go out to the bar and stuff and the sex was very transactional even with him even being in in relationship with him um because this thought of like bringing my my whole self you know, and for me, it was like the shame and the disgust that I had around being gay and not accepting myself. And, and I had a lot of acne at that time in my life, I just felt like I just felt really gross. And so me sharing that part of me, it just felt way too vulnerable. And, uh, and then when I got to about 25 years old, that's actually when I sought out therapy. And it was because I think I've shared this on the podcast before I was blushing, I was, my face was getting red in like the weirdest interactions. There would be nothing to be embarrassed about, but my face would go beat red. And I, and that's when I learned about Brene Brown and vulnerability and all these things and, uh, and learning how to like show up and expose myself. And, and it was a long journey that I had been on because I had been so numbed out from drugs and alcohol and dissociating. So coming back to myself, Honestly, I think I'm still moving through this. It's because it, it was a lot of years, like, you know, almost two decades of numbing out and not really connecting to myself in the in the ways that I am now. Um, 
So, yeah. So it's, and then I went through a period of, um, you know, I went to rehab when I was 18 and uh, that was like a basic, kind of like a, a month. And then it was a three month program, but a month inpatient. And uh, the day I got out, I used, and that was, you know, 18, 19 ish started going to therapy, never did the AA or an NA route. Um, it just, I was too insecure to get up and speak in front of people and stuff. So I did uh, private therapy for every week for years. And uh, that was really helpful. And, uh, and then I had, I started to really get on my spiritual path around the age of 25, 26, studied shamanism, you know, my schooling was complete, and I was working in, you know, uh, drug and alcohol treatment facilities. So I actually uh, didn't use for a long period of time, that was when my sobriety really started. And that was years. And then I, I did a lot of deep therapeutic work, I did a lot of plant medicines and things. And I got myself to a place where I wasn't shackled by my addiction anymore. And I was able to start like, um, like, I brought back in like smoking pot and drinking alcohol. Um, but I found for me that it wasn't something that I wanted. So I did that maybe for a few years. And then the way that my relationship to drugs and alcohol now is that I, I will maybe once or twice a year, I'll drink alcohol. And it's like a very special occasion. Like I came out to, to see Michael and we went out to the club one night and I was like, I'm going to let myself go. But then I actually went home after the club and I threw up. <laughs> so my body just rejects it. Like, I think I have an, an allergy to alcohol. Like my body's just like, ugh, no, don't want it. Um, and then during the pandemic, I was smoking a lot of pot. And I was noticing that it was starting to really just affect me in negative ways. So I stopped. So I haven't actually smoked pot in probably like nine months or something like that. Um, yeah. And, and alcohol, alcoholism runs in my family and actually drug addiction runs in my family as well, too. So both sides, so more drug addiction on one side and alcoholism on the other. And both my parents have struggled with, with their own forms of addiction and, uh, um, so it's very much, you know, there it's within my family. So I have a very strong, and even just talking about it now, I'm like, whoa, like I actually, I have a very, very strong history with, with addiction and it, it's, uh, you know, it's dear to my heart and I worked in the space for 10 years and now I haven't because I burnt out from it. It's a very challenging, um, very challenging field to work in. So anybody that's listening that works in the addiction space, like I, a huge shout out to you because, you know, the foot soldiers that are doing the, the work in addictions, the addiction field, it's a lot, it takes a, a huge toll on, on people. Um, so I just wanted to, to share some love for the people that are working in that space and, and for people who are struggling with addiction, it's a very, very challenging thing to deal with. So can I ask you a question, Matt? Yeah, what? please what's um what would you say is like most challenging about it because i i mean it, it seems obvious that it, it is a challenging space to be in but like yeah what what makes it particularly challenging so for me it was the inconsistency so when i was working mm. in inpatient facilities it's it tends to be good i like that but outpatient people don't show up for sessions because they're hungover or they're they're inconsistent and then when i moved into private practice and i was doing solely addiction work in private practice you'd have people that would reach out for consults they wouldn't show up like it's a very very challenging thing because it's affecting your mind and your mood so significantly so that was the biggest thing for me and then you can't actually work with somebody and diagnose them or or understand what's going on with them because withdrawal for example, of drugs and alcohol can mimic certain mental health conditions. 
So it's just mm-hmm. a very messy soup kind of to work in. And I just, for me, it was, it, you know, 10 years was enough. I've put in my time and I wanted to transition into something different. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So how do you see addiction showing up in the gay community, Michael? Yeah. First of all, guys, this is great. Like I, I'm, I'm getting to know you guys. I say this every time we've been doing this for <laughs> years, but I feel like I get to know a new layer of both of you each time yeah. we do this. And I think it's really helpful. Yeah, um, and I, I know, it. I know that there's people out there who feel the same way. So thank you for, for sharing and showing up and being so vulnerable. Um, especially when you're talking about both of you having <clears throat> dealt with this at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, you had said like 13, uh, you know, uh, Reno and, and, and Matt were also very young. Like mm-hmm. I, I was such a, like, not that kid. I was, I didn't get into anything until I was in like high school, like late high school university. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I just wanted to, to acknowledge that and say, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> That's sweet. All right. So how do I see addiction showing up in the gay community? Well, I think we covered, I think everyone's story here is relatable, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. sex, substances, um, you know, Matt, you, I'm really happy you brought up steroids at the beginning. That's that's a, what's one of them for sure that I see, mm-hmm. um, especially as I am a gym goer myself. Um, and it's, yes, very common. I guess I'll speak to my own life. Like I said, I, I live downtown Toronto in the village and I do still like to, to go out and party sometimes. So yes, I see it in on the dance floor. <laughs> uh, anyone who's been to a gay bar, gay club, party, any any event like that, there's drugs all over the place. It's easy to find. Um, take your pick: MDMA, GHB, ketamine, cocaine, all the rest of them, everything under the sun, all their variants and everything else. Uh, and I'm not saying that everyone who uses them is 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 addicted to them by any means. Don't forget what Matt had talked about. There's use, misuse, and abuse. It's really, yeah. really important to note that. So I'm not yeah. by any means saying that that's the case where everyone there is addicted to drugs. It's not totally. it. Totally. Yeah. But I see it a lot. That's where I see it. Um, and the other one, similarly, is the party and play scene. So that's where you would take all of those and then add in uh, crystal meth or Tina. And again, downtown Toronto, where I live, if you pop open your grinder, there's going to be a lot of people who are looking to play PNP, party and play, looking for tea, all that thing, all that, all that stuff. And so I remember a few years ago being like, what the hell is this? Like, why are so many, what's going on here? And then I learned it is highly, highly addictive. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So I think that is where I see it. And and like I had said with sex as well. And then that's my story. Um, I think more so, not not so much what we're addicted to, but how it plays out is the pattern. Like there's that, like listening to you guys talk, there's always an emotional trigger. It's always a feeling, a feeling. It's what it boils down to, an emotion, a feeling. We talked about loneliness. We talked about shame. You guys have said words like disgust, disconnected, repressed. That is the core and that's the emotional trigger. And that leads to the craving piece, like the desire. My desire was for people. So I went to sex and then my use or or what I did to try to satisfy that craving was sex and and hookups. And then there was the fact that afterwards I didn't feel any better. I still felt lonely because guess what? (laughs) I didn't actually, I didn't actually do anything about loneliness. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the pattern. And I think the, the core, I'm not sure about the straight community, but I think shame and loneliness, my two are, are ones that I see happening a lot. Um, maybe there's other ones as well, but those two emotions are inability to 
process and feel those things is really a pattern I see. And that could manifest itself in so many ways, whether you turn to substances, whether you turn to sex, whether you turn to anything else, really, there's no shortage of ways, right? Like yeah. we talked about, but I think that's, that's it. And I think the, the shame piece is what it really boils down to for a lot of gay, gay guys, and maybe queer people as well. So yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For specific so to the points. gay community. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote down two points just from that share. So thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like finishing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but did you see me taking notes? Yeah, yeah. we're taking notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm reflecting on my relationship to addiction. And um, something that I'm noticing is like, I was looking at each moment, you know, it was like, okay, you know, when I had my first cigarette, when I had my first drink, when I had my first toke. Um, you know, and, 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 every, and everything else, like, there was this, the, the recipe was like social pressure, curiosity, and, and like a desire for belonging, I think as well. And like that belonging piece was probably a bit like subtle, like it was kind of, it was there, but I wasn't really, I don't know that I was really conscious of it, but looking back, I can like really empathize with that little boy who was just like, I just want to belong. So like, yeah. you know, sure. Okay. Yeah. Um. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to note that and to notice that, that, that recipe was present in, in every one of those moments, you know, from like early age, even into adulthood, still there was a bit of social pressure the desire for belonging and just a hint of curiosity. And it's like, boom, there we go. Yeah. Um, so I, I also think it's important to acknowledge that in some cases and probably in many or most, if not all, um, it starts out innocently in a way, you know, um, hmm. in the context of the gay community. Uh, well, what I saw first was that like the two D's drinking and drama, to be honest, <laughs> like, mm. and I don't know if drama is an addiction, but I think so. Um, and, and so, you know, that like, for me, that's what I saw more than anything. Um, the way we, the way we had sex, the way we connected, the way we celebrated, the way we socialized, the way we, um had fun um and celebrate like it, it like it was all it's it all seemed to be centered around substance and mm -hmm. particularly alcohol you know and then at the later hours of the night the real shit came out you know as we know um and and then within all of that there seemed to be this like and i and i get it because like i'm in on the joke too um but this like this like drama piece and i don't know how that fits in but it i just saw i was like wow it it, it seemed like such a sort of disconnective counterproductive way to engage and interact and it seemed to be causing hurt and harm in some ways like 
entertainment and fun in some ways. I and again, I like I'm cheeky. I can like spar with the best of them, you know. Um, and also I was like, I don't know, something about this feels off. Like maybe we could just say like, I want a hug, you know, or like I'm feeling some kind of way. But that I would say like for me, that's that's what was most visible in in the gay community. And um the the piece around you know well dr- drugs and sex i think i did see that but um i wasn't as exposed to it and um i found myself kind of shying away from it because it was triggering for me in some ways now i experimented with drugs but again like i i've you know i fairly promptly shied away from a lot of that stuff because yeah it was just so triggering for me like anytime I would see someone who was high um I just got really uncomfortable and sometimes even like defensive in a way like not not toward them but just my guard was up because Mm -hmm. I had grown up in environments where that was the case and it just flashbacks you know I was like nope no thank you um and uh so yeah I I I think um what I what I would what I would also say is that you know my heart really goes out to um my peers um in the gay community because we navigate a lot of pain and a lot of challenge and a lot of adversity simply for existing for being um you know from early on maybe for some of us like right from the beginning you know Mm -hmm. and that can be really hard and life is already difficult and we find ways to cope and to deal and 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 Sometimes that looks like drugs. Sometimes that looks like alcohol. Sometimes that looks like sex or food or, you know, what whatever it is. And so, um, I'm I'm very empathetic. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not easy, um, and it takes incredible and remarkable courage to navigate this world, um, sober. I guess pre like fully fully here, fully feeling, fully present, you know, without the mask and without the stuff, it's hard, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you're on that journey, my hat's off to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That was really beautiful, Reno. I, uh, I felt emotional when you were sharing because it's like, it's true. It's really true. Um, the minority stress and the same thing could be said, you know, the gay community is one minority stressed group. You got other things. Then you have people that are cross crossed over in both these groups, right? It could be a person of color, minority stress, being gay, minority stress, and it's just compounding. So yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that we're all doing our best to get, to get by truly. And uh, yeah. And I think the, the anecdote really is to connection. I think so many of us are struggling with deep loneliness and disconnection and we need we need each other right it's it's so important um yeah so sex is probably the one that i see the most 
in the gay community. And actually, I shouldn't say I don't work with addiction anymore because that's the that's the area that I work with now. I have a lot of gay men reaching out to me wanting to do deep work on sexual addiction and compulsion. And um, but it always ends up being shame and trauma work because that's why they're and they're disconnected. They're lonely, so they're seeking connection in ways. So it's it's you're working when when I when I'm working with addiction, sex addiction, I'm working with intimacy avoidance. That's essentially what I work with. And it's, it's really interesting. So um, yeah, drugs, again, like Michael said, party and play. And, but it's interesting, the party and play scene is why it's so addicting is because it's offering, but just in a dysfunctional way, exactly what the person's looking for. They're looking for connection and community. And when you're in a room of 15 other guys that are partying and playing, there's still camaraderie, connection, community that's happening, but you're deteriorating your life together. That's the thing. So if we can take the drugs out and learn how to connect with each other in intimate ways and, and, and sex, you know, both, I think that will help. Right. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting, very, very interesting phenomenon, the party and play scene. Um, I think a lot of gay men are addicted to external validation. I think that's an anecdote to, or temporary anecdote, we'll say to shame. Um, and then, yeah, I think we use drugs and alcohol to numb, uh, tra trauma, shame, and loneliness. Again, like we, we, it just, it's such a repetitive thing that shows up constantly as these three kind of the three headed monster in the gay community is trauma, shame, and loneliness. And um, yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, and then I wanted to share a little bit, a little anecdote from myself and just, it's, this is still showing up for me actually is um, I find it hard to find connection in the gay community to be completely honest. And I'm this in this area, I'm talking more so romantically. Okay. I am demisexual. I'm highly sensitive. I have these things that make intimacy and sex different for me. <laughs> and the typical gay guy is just does not meet those needs for me because we're, we're different in a way. I require much more slowed down ways of moving towards sex. And, and uh, I, I prefer intimacy first and sex after um, these things aren't very common in the gay, gay community so I deal with my own aspect of loneliness when it comes to this and you know one of the areas that I'm you, you said Reno that you're trying to change your relationship with your phone and this is what's coming up for me so I'm trying to slide over my apps of things that I just mindlessly scroll and I'm moving in things like my guitar tuner and my um, my Spanish learning app Duolingo I'm putting those down on the on the base and then these other ones a bit more hidden because I don't want that but then when I did that I'm kind of like what's happening is this impulse at the end of the day is I don't want to go towards those apps I want to go towards where I can find connection and like tinder I'm scrolling and I'm like looking and hoping for somebody to come along that's going to be like I'm demisexual and I'm looking for this and um and whatever so uh I do feel loneliness right now and it's showing up and it's it's affecting my behavior um and put, I wouldn't say I'm addicted to to my phone but there's for sure compulsion there around like continuously scrolling in this with looking for and hoping that this need this unmet need that I have will go met which is for connection right in more so sexual intimacy is really what I'm looking for I have connection like platonic connection I got plenty of that uh, but it's the sexual intimacy that is really really lacking in my life um so um what else did I want to say lonely I think that was it yeah those were the the, the points that I had so you um, you 
you sparked a lot there. And I just want to say <laughs> one thing, which is like, uh, well, first of all, thank you for sharing all of yeah. that, because it, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about all yeah. of that. Take your time uh, if you need to share. Yeah, don't you yeah. Don't have to rush. Yeah. Well, um, something I've been noticing and, and, you know, and bless this community, um, you know, the existence of this community and, you know, other communities that are working to like, sort of offset this or or change it um i think a lot about the environments that we gay men um commune in or 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 rather like don't commune in um you know because when i think of the essence of that word there's like a depth to it and my experience is that sometimes that depth is actually missing in these communities and spaces um that i'm speaking of like some of these apps and um the nightclubs, etc. Now, I'm not saying that connection doesn't happen in those spaces because I've had a lot of fun in those spaces yeah. and I've made friends in those spaces and I have danced the night away in those spaces and I've, you know, I I could certainly spend ages reminiscing about my time mm -hmm. in those spaces and all the fun and experiences I've had in them. And also, at some point, I started to notice that there was this yearning and this longing for a layer and a level deeper you know, mm -hmm. and that it somehow seemed hard to reach that and access that. And so, you know, what I'm really excited about is that in the recognition of that longing and that yearning for that, that depth of connection, we then get to start looking at and creating ways to to have that, to access that. You know, the Gay Men's yeah. Brotherhood is an example. I went to this amazing festival this summer, Ignite. Um, you know, I've gone to some of the Body Electric events and I host some of my own stuff. And it's amazing because what people say is like, wow, you know, I felt so connected in this space. I met new people. I had, you know, these really deep and juicy conversations. It's like, well, what makes that possible? You know, it's the intent of the space, the energy of the space that is so important. So yeah. I think if we keep going to places where we're experiencing disappointment as a result of, you know, the sort of culture and environment in those spaces, then we get to create spaces like this and other yeah. spaces where, you know, where there's an alternative, because otherwise, you know, like what wh we can accept what's there and, you know, or and tolerate what's there. We can create what we actually want, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And you look at the like the way that the gay culture has formed. It's like we all met in bathhouses. We met in bars. We met in these yeah. areas that are really conducive to using alcohol, using drugs, poppers, these sorts of things. So that's that's, you know, and, and for me, I want to just re I want to iterate that it's both and not either or. I think we want to have yeah. those environments where you can you can play and indulge totally. in the things that you want to indulge in. And then on the other side, we need more community where there's healing, where there's connection, platonic connection. Like I just got back from facilitating at a retreat for a week and it was no sex, no sexual energy, leave that at home and come and connect and bring your heart. And it was the most amazing thing, like connecting with people where you're being conscious of your sexual energy, not bringing it forward, leaving it within yourself. And it was amazing how there was safety 
in the mm. community that isn't there when there's this cruisy energy around like, you know, because the hot guy in the group is going to get all the attention from everybody. So mm. the attention was dispersed amongst everybody because people right. were there looking to connect with people on a on a on a platonic in a platonic way so it, i think we need more of this that's what this is and i think that's the, the the reason why we have brought this vision into life is you know this is a primarily a platonic community for people to learn how to connect heal grow together evolve um and then offshoot that is different other subsets that can come from that right so yeah, yeah. you guys just referred to my men's groups that's exactly what we do there yeah yeah and uh it's funny the first the first topic we cover is minority stress like Mm -hmm. from the jump and then in my in my welcome that's one of the first things we talk about is i kind of set the rules for okay yes we are all kind of eyeing each other here let's call it out we're all doing Mm -hmm. it we're looking at who's hot who we want to be paired with because i pair them in in weeks (laughs) and I just say it. I'm like, listen, that's not what this is about. If you want to do that afterwards, by all means, go for it. But like, notice that, like notice already how we're all doing that. Everyone's like, oh yeah, I'm doing that. (laughs) And it's really important. So everything you guys are saying is, is hundred percent true. And, um, I've, I've run these groups now. This is my third one in a row. One was about sexual empowerment, where we talked about sex without necessarily having it be cruisy or hookup-y, but talk men having conversations about sex. Mm -hmm. And then this one's more so, um, a variety of topics but either way it's all very true people will say the same thing like hey wait a minute we are all kind of having a lot of the same issues and how nice is it to connect and speak and listen to other people share their experiences and then guess what we all feel less alone yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so important so important yeah yeah final thoughts before we wrap this one up yeah excited for the next one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> me, yeah, me too. too yeah yeah and i i guess like i would just say i you know it, like while out have a good time <laughs> you know get your fuck on like it's all it's all good and also like if there's a part of you that's recognizing that maybe some of what you're up to isn't hitting isn't giving anymore you know mm-hmm. then then like maybe be open to to something new something different and it's going to be uncomfortable at first you know at least for me it's been speaking mm-hmm. from experience this this journey that i'm on it is really i mean i was going to the club sober before and dancing anyway but like it takes real courage to show up in a space like that and to be like yeah. i'm just going to dance and i'm not going to numb anything that's coming up around it you know so yeah. I, again i say my hat's off to you if you know if that's your decision and also if you want to like go out and get your drink and your fuck on that's cool too you know Mm -hmm. no judgment just like you know just like you said earlier Matt I think conscious consumption like be aware of what you're up to and how it's affecting you yeah that's fundamental you know yeah well said yeah yeah well said all right well um Come and join us next week, obviously, for the final part of this conversation. Um, And come and join us in the Facebook group, The Gay Men's Brotherhood. Um, We're going to have our conversation the last Thursday of this month about addiction and recovery. So come and share your own stories. Um, And leave some comments on YouTube. We want to know how, you know, what's your relationship to addiction? How is this showing up for you? How are you seeing this show up in the gay community? Um, And uh, if you're 
listening to us on your favorite podcast platform and you liked what you heard today, five-star rating, because then this will put us into the ears of the people that need to hear us. So we appreciate your rating and your sharing of this episode. That would be really great. Um, and if you want to know more about what we're doing at the Gay Men's Brotherhood, you can go to uh, gaymensbrotherhood.com. All right. See you next week.